Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO John Walda, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative, and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools at www.nakubo.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Nakubo in Brief. I'm Megan Strand, your host, and I'd like to thank you so much for tuning in today. I'm excited to be here with Gary Margolis, president and CEO of Social Sentinel and also a retired university police chief. Hi, Gary. Hi, Megan. Well, today we're going to talk about social media threats. So let's just jump right in and tell us what are social media threats? Social media has become a, uh, a significant source of, of interplay and communication amongst college students uh, today. And um, if we look back at the time I came into um, campus public safety, um, you know, 100 years ago at a time when uh, we were just moving um, you know, we were putting blue lights up and we were putting cameras up and technology was was in that kind of infancy. And when students were, you know, st- they started bringing their own email addresses with them. Um, you know, I lived through the period of time where we moved from, you know, posting notes on bulletin boards in the student center mm-hmm. to, to going digital and electronic. And what we've seen over the last 20 years or so, if, if, if not the last 15, is this migration of the communication, you know, how we talk to each other and college students and, and you know, young adults are um, predominantly using social media as their communication uh, tool. When we started, when email became the, the way we communicated, I, I, w- I lived through the period of time where it went from email um, to text messaging and, and university administrators, we were frustrated because college students uh, weren't looking at their emails and uh, then they were bringing their own emails with them. They weren't even using the university's emails. And then they moved to the text messaging and nobody was emailing anymore. And then it went into um, text messaging into social media. And now they were using, at the time, it was Facebook. And now it's even migrated away from Facebook and, and into, you know, Twitter and Instagram as a predominant uh, primary tools of communication and social media for, for college students. And now it's, it's begun, not only is it in um, uh, Instagram and Twitter, uh, it's it's now also in the live streaming, the Periscope. Mm. That. So it's it's an interesting um, uh, transition of, of communication. And because of that, uh, people feel a lot more comfortable expressing themselves. And there's a lot of good that comes with that, right? Social media being able to, to be a platform for conversation and for sharing and all the good stuff. And at the same time, it's also where students are talking about the things that concern them, um, the things that they're afraid of, um, you know, threats, self-harm, um, indicators of violence. And so um, that's become a, uh, an issue in terms of what's being shared on social media uh, that's, that's not reflective of the best parts of society, so to speak. And when it comes to social media threats, you have things ranging from students expressing a desire to hurt themselves and whether or not to take that seriously, as well as the desire to inflict, da- inflict harm upon somebody else. Is that correct? 
Absolutely. And, 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 and we're seeing that kind of communication um, like we did. Look, the fact that people talk about harming others and harming themselves and that, that where there's some kind of intervention needed is not a phenomenon new because of social media. Mm-hmm. It's just now proliferated because of social media, right. where, where social media is, is the primary tool of communication. Again, you know, 20 years ago or more, um, when communication was via paper or, or letters or a note on the bulletin board or a note to a teacher or passed between students in class, mm-hmm. we still had an obligation to, to identify and deal with threats of harm, self-harm, harm against others, harm against the institutions. Uh, and all of that was still there, except now it's migrated into the digital sphere and universities and colleges are, are struggling to figure out, well, how do we pay attention to that? I mean, the sheer volume alone exactly. is, is staggering. And so this idea of, of social media threat alerts and how can we pay attention to them in a way that's respectful of privacy and respectful of um, free speech and at the same time tuned to um, indicators of harm and violence has become quite an issue for universities and colleges. Well, you led right into my next question. So what are threat alert systems and how can they be implemented? Well, the the idea of, of social listening, social mm-hmm. media listening is not is not new per right, se. Right. When social media became uh, started to grow, you know, with the with the advent of Facebook and MySpace and, you know, all the the early tools that, you know, platforms that have now migrated into from the text based you know, we were typing messages into image-based and video, right? Facebook bought Instagram as it grew because they wanted to include um, an image-based platform, right? Twitter began to incorporate images and videos. Mm-hmm. We began to see that grow into that space. And now we have the, the growth of, of companies like Periscope that was just purchased by Twitter because they're live streaming. So this, there was this, this kind of this evolution of, of, of the growth. That um, social media, uh, the the ability to scan and pay attention has become uh, staggering. It's it's just it's just too much. I mean, it's 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 overwhelming, as such. And so, threat alerts are um, you know a, a, as the, as companies as social listening companies were were growing for marketing purposes. Right? How many people like Guess Jeans? Mm-hmm. How many people are trending on Coca Cola? That's that's you know where a lot of the social media companies began to monetize their data streams. Right. Social listening became um, popular and and grew. Um, and universities and colleges across the country are very um, aware of social listening tools because many of them use them mm-hmm. to understand how many people are trending on the brand of the institution, how many people are talking, you know, sentiment tracking, how many people are talking about. Um, Social media on social media referenced the school, the mascot, the all the things that universities want to understand because you know universities are businesses. I mean, they have to understand their markets and how people are talking about them. Out of that um, began um, in 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 kind of the, the 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 earlier stages this idea that well, if we're listening on behalf of sentiment, maybe we can be listening on behalf of safety and security. You know, the National mm-hmm. Center for Campus Public Safety. Um, funded by Congress, um, it ran a survey, the, the 2015 Campus Safety Survey. One of the questions they asked was, you know, are you paying attention to social media for safety and security? And two-thirds of respondents 
and it was a significant population sampling. Uh, the National Center gets a uh, and Margolis Healy um, uh, gets a um, respectable turnout every year for the survey, so mm-hmm. it's, it's statistically significant. Two thirds of respondents indicated that they understand the need to pay attention to campus uh, digital the digital conversation for um, safety and security. They understood the need to listen to social media for safety and security. But only about um, two-thirds of those, or 10% of the total, had um, any idea or had any process in place to do it automated. Mm. They're all doing it manually, right, right. Which, which is somewhat challenging um, as such. So, so the idea of social media listening has been around a while. The idea of applying it to um, safety and security is relatively new and is pioneered by Social Sentinel. I mean, the, the company that I founded, um, you know, we founded it because we knew that universities needed a way to pay it more and more than universities, you know, schools and, and, and any, any entity that has to protect its community, you know, as such, had, a, had to figure out, but in particular, as we're talking about universities and colleges, because that's where my, my background comes from, how do we pay attention to the digital conversation in a way that's respectful? that respects student privacy, that's not following people, that does it in a way that truly is an alert system and not a, I want to follow Megan Strand and everything she puts on her social media account, which right. which I'm going to use a very sophisticated term um, to describe the reaction to that, which is icky. Oh, icky. I was going to say stalking. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> icky. Well, that too, but it's icky. It's like, you know, no, even though it's public information, right. it's just a little icky, right? So from, from my angle, you know, having, having understood the need to do this in a way that's respectful, we, you know, we kind of, we kind of birthed and conceived of this, this industry of threat alerts um, and, and doing it in a way that is, is very respectful of the individual and of the school's need to, to track potentially dangerous things. Let's talk a little bit about what threats might trigger alarm. So are there specific keywords and phrases that may indicate threats of harm and maybe including self-harm when they're posted online to social media platforms? Yeah, the, great question. We, when we set out to, to build this um, tool, um, we, we wanted to understand the language of harm. You know, how you and I talk today um, and how you know human beings have communicated the way we're doing now is 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 now unique to the oral exchange of information. Y- you and I both remember when texting became popular. The the pundits and the experts thought it was the end of the written word as we knew it. Right? Exactly. I mean, it was you know it's you know. I still who, sort of feel that when I when I see my daughter's texts. <laughs> it, it's it's tough, right? I have teenagers, and I'm I'm always like you know I'm I'm. I'm, I'm pushing them to use the, you know, to write notes and to actually, you know, write sentences because of that very same concern. I mean, I, you know, they, the Y-O-U-R is now your, you know, uh-huh. you are, you are. all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, right? So, so yeah, so there's, so what I needed to understand for us was what is the language of harm or how is language communicated on social media? Mm-hmm. Because again, transition from text to social media and yet there's another evolution of how language is, is how we speak and how we talk, how we communicate. And so for us to, to be successful, I believed that we needed, um, and I believe what's needed is to understand the language of harm on social media. So um, we went out and we found um, experts, linguists, subject matter experts on areas from s- mental health, suicide, depression, self-harm, to um, active shooters, to um, criminal activity and violence, mm-hmm. 
Um, and we built a library that um, captures the language of harm in more than keywords. Because what's what's unique to the to the social media experience, I think, or or maybe, well, ma'am, I think it is unique to the social media experience. Is and we've seen this over and over again. You know, um, a young person, and I use this, I use a self harm example because I think it's it's um, it's, it's very applicable and it's mm-hmm. an easier, I think, example to be able to illustrate. Um, a young, you know, a young adult is talking about harming themselves. Um, the message on social media isn't necessarily today's the day I'm going to kill myself. Right. That's not the language that's often used. The language of use is I, you know, I don't feel good about myself or I, I'm, you know, I don't feel well or why is everything so difficult or so we went out and found experts to help us understand how do people talk about self-harm? Mm-hmm. How do active shooters talk about active shooting, mm-hmm. you know, violent you know, significant violent acts. What does that look like? You know, and the idea that um, students are, uh, or that people, not, I'm sorry, not students, excuse me, that was a slip, that people who we went and looked at, you know, 20 to 50 years worth of, of active shooters and looked at the notes they left and the language they used mm-hmm. and we saw patterns. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is it's more than searching for the word shoot, bomb, kill, it's searching and understanding language structure, understanding how we communicate, and then using that understanding in those lessons in a way to um, to scan the digital cloud and look for indicators of of harm. And we've had great success with that approach um, in having built a library that that has that kind of expertise. And you know, I think that's critical to doing threat assessment, threat alerts well. Um, I think that's a very important component. And we, we see, look, you know, again, universities and colleges understand this. Um, after Virginia Tech, the tragedy at Virginia Tech, you know, threat assessment teams became even more prevalent. Now, they existed before, but certainly right. explosive growth, right, around threat assessment. And um, my, my, my other company, Margolis Healy, was involved in building the threat assessment uh, model on behalf of the, uh, of, of the Justice Department. And so we, again, in that setting – Teams were taught to identify trends and patterns in language, you know, sitting with experts, multidisciplinary teams around the table looking and saying, what is this person talking about? Are they a threat to themselves, to others? And so what we've done is we've taken that language, that assessment, that understanding to the extent that a, a computer can pull all of that in. But we've taken that information and we've, we've built it into the technology. Do you have an example of a university that has a threat alert system in place that has had some success with it? Like what can what can people expect from instituting a threat alert system? Well, you know, the it's a great question. Let me start with what is social media today in terms of how it's used, a little bit more than what I've shared already. So, um, you know, there are roughly 850 to a billion social media posts made publicly every day. Right. So that's roughly 25 to 30 billion a month that's being that's that that's out there in the digital sphere that's that in, that encircles the globe, so to speak. Right. And so um, the success that that universities have had that have, um, you know, I can only speak to our system because I uh, that's the sure. system I know, obviously, um, is this um, are examples where they've been able to intervene in self-harm. Um, I've spoken to um, many a university in our customer base that have said, but not for, for Social Sentinel, we would not have um, identified this young, this young person who 
um, was talking about uh, harming themselves and were able to intervene, you know, before that happened. Um, we've seen interventions around gang violence. We've seen interventions around um, drug activity that had a direct impact on, you know, I think all drug activity has direct impact on safety and security, but sure. but but that had violence attached to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where we've seen weapons involved. And, and so there have been, um, you know, many examples of that success. I talked to a university police chief not too long ago um, that uses our solution. And, you know, uh, he said, I was checking in. How's it going? You know, just good. He's a friend. I've just seen how he's doing. He said, you're not going to believe what we found. We were able to intervene in this. And again, it was a suicide. We were able to intervene in the suicide attempt. And we did it because of what uh, they were posting. They were reaching out for help on social media and we were able to see it because the system identified it for us. Um, it's very rewarding, you know, when our system can help a, a university or a college or a school um, intervene and, and keep its community safe, both the person who may want to harm themselves or the person who may want to harm others, keeping others safe as well as that individual. So there's, there's a lot of, of good stuff happening around this idea of, you know, paying attention to the conversation that's happening digitally. And it's no different, Megan, than than what campus public safety has always done around community policing and community public safety, which is engage in the conversation and help. When When it comes to best practice, who's involved from the university with a threat alert system? And is the system layering on top of an existing social media listening system or is this completely separate? It's uh, it's completely separate because the existing systems that that are being used by universities for listening around sentiment and brand mm-hmm. are are not what we, what what a service like Social Sentinel does as a right. threat alert service. So you know our our library has you know thousands of behaviors, phrases, keywords, lemmatized sentences, and all the things that go into what we do. Um, companies that are looking at the brand just don't do that, you know, so it is a, it is a separate system, but the data that generates from the system, you know, that flows back to the institution flows into their existing threat alert processes. Mm -hmm. So it's not, and it doesn't require additional staff, additional work. It's, it's not an additional, um, obligation. It's simply another data stream into existing systems, which is critically important because universities already know how to look at information um, or should already know how to look at information that they right. have to evaluate and assess. And so when our, when our system generates data, uh, or an alert rather, it goes to public safety, it may go to the counseling center, it may go to the threat alert team. It's you know how that university chooses to use and deploy. Most of our, um, most of our, our customers in the university setting, the information is – goes back into the public safety department or police department and and then or they're the champion that's using the system on a day-to-day basis but then they've got the ability to be sharing those alerts with the counseling center you know with the threat alert team you know the behavioral threat assessment team Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth what would you say is the long-term roi of a threat system that's i'm going to go back to um prior technology that evolved and was understood on college campuses, right? So, uh, and I've spent a lot of time in my career as a, an expert witness in defense of universities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've represented and we've represented um, some very large institutions that, um, uh, that you've read about, you know, in, in, in the paper um, that have had significant problems happen. 
and I'll go back. Having said that, I'll go back to prior technologies, and, and let me let me start with cameras. I, I lived through the we're putting cameras on college campuses. You thought it was the end of the world as we knew it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and we thought it was it was oh my gosh, people were screaming and yelling. What do you mean you're going to be spying on us, looking at us, and so forth? Now let me ask you today: um, do, do you think you could walk into a college campus today and not see um, cameras? No way. No way. Um, on top of that, every person that goes to a college or university or 99.9% of them have digital capture devices in their pockets mm. because you and I both have phones that have cameras built into them. So the idea of university and, – and when cameras first came out, they were very costly. You had to wire the campus. You had to wire the cameras individually. You had to put someone in front of it. You had to be staring at the screens. We learned from studies in the UK that you only got about 30 minutes looking at a bank of cameras before you tune out. I mean, you, <laughs> you just can't do it, right? I have enough trouble with paying attention to staring at a television half the time. Like I can't imagine looking at like, you know, 10 different cameras. But what happened was as camera – you know, a number of things happened. One, universities began building IP infrastructures, right? They ran fiber rings and networks. And cameras became IP cameras and they plug into the existing network, right? That was one. So the cost went down. Two, technology shifted. You know, we went from um, uh, having to stare at the things to these cameras are smart. They know when someone walks in front of them. They activate when they're in a stairway so they're not recording, you, you know, 24-7. They can recognize license plates. Um, they can track a, an individual across a campus that's walking between cameras. Technology is pretty impressive about this. And so as a result... Everyone's got a, you know, camera systems are, matter of fact, when I get, you know, although I don't do much of it anymore, but, but if, if, you know, if I, if I'm called in to do expert witness work and it's about a safety and security claim, which they all are, that's all I do. Um, and, you know, and, and there's a duty of care. And one of the first questions I'm asking is, tell me about the camera system. And the university said, well, we don't have cameras. I'm scratching my head thinking, who doesn't have cameras? Uh, I mean, you know, in this, so that's one example of, and the long-term ROI, universities are not getting rid of their camera systems at this point. You know, it's not, they're not going away. We saw that with blue lights, you know, for the impact. Now, you know, blue lights, we could argue about the efficacy of a blue light system now that everyone has a phone in their pocket, right? But before everyone did, you put blue lights in. And even today, universities aren't getting rid of the blue lights because, again, they provide another layer of safety and security mm-hmm. into the existing and the other example, the two other examples I'd use are, you know, we lived through, you know, the, the evolution of access control. Do you remember when there was this thing that was metal and it was like an inch and a half long, two inches long, and they used to carve a little niche? You'd actually stick it into a door to open the door, <laughs> right? Remember how unique that was? I mean, that's like, you know, ancient, right? And my kids look at keys now and they're like, <laughs> you know, we don't have keys to our home. We're all digital keypad entrance and all the other stuff to our house, right? So my kids are like, what's a key, right? So... Um, and today on college campuses, how do we get in and out of things? Do you, I mean, listen, I, I, again, many of, 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 of your listeners uh, are going are gonna to chuckle, I think, when I say this. But I remember when the key shop lived in, phys- in the physical plant department and it was actually keys. <laughs> and today the key shop is now access control and it lives in the IT department, mm-hmm. right? And to get in and out of a, of a room or a building, you know, some universities have gone to biometrics. Some have HID prox cards. You know, we're not even – we're moving away from mag readers now. We're not even doing that anymore, right? So there's this evolution and again, what's the ROI? The ROI is more control, better information, 
better understanding, you know, I mean, many a university police chief will tell you that, you know, the story of having become a university public safety director or police chief and doing a key audit, you know, one of the first things you do is on the list is, well, let's understand who has access to buildings. And, you know, what do you mean there are 400 great grandmaster keys that aren't accountable? (laughs) You know, I mean, like, what do you mean they're not accountable? I mean, what does that mean? You know, and then the university say, well, we're not spending four million bucks rekeying everything. And so, but today, uh, you know, if, 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 if Megan Strand is no longer an employee of the university, it, you know, I click on a button on the screen and all of a sudden, boom, you don't get into anything anymore. Right. Right. So, and we saw the same thing with mass notification. I remember when mass notification was, a, was faxes. We would send, if there was a message that had to go to the campus, we would fax something to the IT or the, uh, to the telecom. Oh, that was the other thing. Remember, remember when universities had phones in the residence halls? <laughs> Right. I mean, that was like ancient. Right. I mean, they don't I mean, it totally lost that stream of business. They all bring cell phones with them. Right. But I remember that we would send a fax and the fax would get distributed to every fax machine on campus. And we thought we were that was mass notification. But today that's not mass mass notification. Right. That's that may be one piece of it, but it's more. So I think the the, the ROI for social media threat alerts um, are along the same lines. The digital conversation, you know, we know that to be good at you know, for professors to be good at teaching, they have to listen to their students. They have to be where their students are. You know, as a former, you know, professor, part-time professor, teacher, I, I was one of the greatest lessons I learned in my doctoral and my, my graduate program, you know, uh, you know, years ago now, was to be a really good teacher, you have to meet your students where they are. To be a really good public safety officer, you have to meet your community where they are. You have to listen to them and be a part of the conversation. Everything's on social media now. So I think there's an obligation to be there. There's an obligation to listen to the conversation. And I think the ROI is, given how much is happening on social media, if we are truly concerned with the development of our students for their own safety in terms of you know, threats made against you know, themselves or against others and potential risks and dangers, I think there is an obligation to pay attention to the digital conversation. I think universities are not, you know, the times are not, you know, rolling themselves backwards. Universities more and more and more have an obligation um, to the safety and security conversation. When I sit with vice presidents for student affairs and vice presidents for finance and admin, and when I sit with university presidents and provosts, and I ask them, hey, when you started your career in academia, did you think you'd have to understand access control, behavioral threat, mass notification, you know, cameras, Safety. I mean, did you know active shooters? They all look at me like, no. We came in and you know, I'm a finance person, and I came up doing finance stuff, and I'm an admin, and I, you know, I was a teacher, I was a professor, I did, and now they have to understand all these things. And so, I think the ROI is um, is critically important um, because they they have to be using technology in a way that's cost effective and efficient when they have access to it. When cameras were very expensive, you could argue. We, we can't afford them. But you can't argue that anymore because they're not expensive. You know, they're very easy to implement. You know, threat assessment, social media threat alerts, you know, on digital, you know, with services like Social Sentinel, which is very unique in the field, there's, there's very little argument against we can't do it because it's not cost in effect, you know, it's not, um, it's not cost prohibitive. Um, the technology doesn't require additional FTEs, just like you don't have to put people in front of cameras. Um, so there's this art, you know, and, and, you know, there are lawsuits pending. There's at least one lawsuit pending now at a university that a Title IX lawsuit 
which alleges that the university should reasonably have known about the climate of sexual and gender violence on campus because it was being shared on social media. And the university, you know, I mean, that's an interesting position because now there's lawsuits pending right. around you have to be paying attention to this stuff. And so, so I think the ROI is significant. I think the ostrich effect of bury your head in the sand and hope it goes away hasn't ever worked in the past and it's not going to work now. You know, you got to pay attention to what, what's coming at you. Well, thank you so much, Gary, for joining me today. You've certainly given us a lot to think about. Well, it's been, it's been my pleasure and um, I, I applaud you and your colleagues and the association for its interest in this important topic and for its interest in, in commitment to the, to the safety and security conversation, um, which, is, uh, which is now very prevalent in the world of higher ed. So I thank you. You can find out more about today's episode and Gary by visiting the distance learning section of nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to Nakubo in brief in iTunes so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Gary and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Nakubo in brief. Mm-hmm.